Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of Neuroscience, Elizabeth Glader, a scholar whose research explores genetics and behavior. So welcome, Elizabeth. It's good to have you with us here, Thank you. Uh, sort of with us and not with us, <laughs> um, as we all are these days. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be here. Um, so how are you adjusting to uh, life in the time of coronavirus? <laughs> uh, I think it's a work in progress, still adjusting, but trying to enjoy the the fun parts of being able to be at, be at home a lot and all the little projects you're always meaning to do. Now you actually have some time to do them. So I'm trying to emphasize the positive and not listen to the news too much so that you can enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind parts. of hard sometimes. It, <laughs> yes. it's, it's easy and, to, to spend a lot of your time listening to a lot of people um, who have uninformed opinions about, yes. <laughs> about what's going on. <laughs> And for our listeners, they can't see that Elizabeth has a lovely Zoom background of a resort. So she, looks very, she looks like she's having fun there. How do you know it's a Zoom background? <laughs> or it could be a different background. Well, and, and I'll have to say then that Patty is, looks like she's on Stover Walk. Um, I'm the only How one here who's, who's really in my own home. But I'm, I am in my home. It is a background. <laughs> Um, but back to why we're here. Um, Elizabeth, tell us about your, your early years. Did you always lean toward science? I did. I was actually thinking about that. So my very early years, I, I loved collecting insects and bugs and, <laughs> and things. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a city, so that was... Um, I, we didn't have a backyard, so I would collect them from on the sidewalk and things, which my mom didn't totally uh, approve of. She would <laughs> worry about what I was doing out there in the cracks of the of the sidewalk. Um, she didn't know that you were just preparing for your career. Exactly, I was preparing for my career. <laughs> but I got um, I got fast forward to when I was in college. I took a class in invertebrate zoology. And one of our projects was to collect insects, and then we're supposed to find each different class of insects and, and identify the species and make a, and you can actually preserve them and label them and all this. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, like finally, <laughs> my, my, I'm actually getting to do what I want to do, and it counts as, you know, as work. And so I've been preparing for this. I've been preparing for this, although I was really unprepared because I just didn't actually know that many different kinds of insects because my family wasn't really that into that so I know little kids growing up with um, yards and things people are always saying like oh that's a roly-poly or that's a grasshopper <laughs> or whatever but I still remember I had, I had uh, caught a cricket and my and my, I was trying to identify it I was looking up in our books and looking at different pictures and my professor came over and I remember saying like and she's like, oh, well, you know, what are you trying to identify? And she figured it would be some sort of obscure you know, <laughs> with, with my cricket. And so she, but she was really nice. So she kind of said, well, you know, let's look at the shape of it and look it up. And then finally I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, that was a really fun, fun project. So when were you introduced to, uh, when and how were you introduced to neuroscience? Yeah, so neuroscience was relatively late. I started, well, it was in college. I started, uh, biology was kind of my favorite class in high school. So that was kind of my first 
sort of introduction to like, oh, this is all the stuff that I like to do. And then my my side project was interest, being interested in psychology, which wasn't offered at my high school at the time. So I had to do it on the side. So I read this magazine called, I still remember, called Psychology Today. That was the first magazine that I got my own subscription to. So it came with my name <laughs> on the label, which is very, very important to me. Empowering. Um, Yes, empowering. <laughs> and I used to literally like read it cover to cover. I still, I still remember that. Um, the, 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 it's changed somewhat since then. I used to be a little bit more scientific. Now it's a little bit more. I don't, I don't still actually read it anymore. But anyway, at the time, that was <laughs> very exciting. And so that was my, when I got, so then so that, those were kind of my two interests. And then I got to college and the one class that I knew I wanted to take for sure was intro psychology. And I was just dying to tell people when they asked me what courses I was taking, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm taking intro psych. Cause I thought that sounded like a college student because no one, you couldn't take that in high school. So everyone would know for sure I was in college if I, if I told them. So I really, um, and so then it wasn't until I was sort of finishing college that I realized that there was this intersection between psychology and biology, which is neuroscience where you can do experiments in the lab and use molecular biology and do microscopy but to answer questions um, about the brain and why we do what we do. And I was sort of like, why isn't everybody in this field? Like, there's nothing better, you know? So that was kind of, um, so that's when I, so I went to graduate school then in neuroscience after that. And so that's always just been, I just feel lucky it's sort of the timing that these fields came together as such a explosion of exciting research going on while I was in grad school and, and you know. And that was it a grad school that sparked your interest in pursuing an academic career? Where did that come about? Um, that's good. Um, hmm. I, you know, that's my, I, I guess all, partly was in college. I looked at some of my professors there and I thought, oh, this looks like a good job. I, I would like to do that. But then I still wasn't really sure at that point. So I went to a small liberal arts college. I went to Swarthmore College. So then going on to graduate school, being at a big university and seeing how, what it's like to run a lab there, I was kind of still trying to decide, okay, where, where's the right place for me to, um, you know, sort of ultimately where I'd like to end up. And then, you know, everyone always tells you that, you know, there's so few jobs and um, it's going to be really uh, hard to do what you want to do. So my, my philosophy was always just to enjoy what I'm doing um, in the moment. So I was like, well, as long as I'm enjoying graduate school right now, I'll just worry about what's going to happen <laughs> after that. And as long as the postdoc's going okay, we'll just worry about, yeah. And so luckily my, my, my method uh, worked out because I was really ecstatic to end up here at, um, at Pomona. Um, so yeah, so I, so I guess, so I guess yes, but I wasn't, if you had asked me at the time, I would always have said, well, I'm still kind of figuring, you know, figuring things out, but it was always kind of definitely one of the choices in my mind for what I wanted to do. That just sounds like a very healthy outlook to enjoy the moment. <laughs> well, especially now, right? Yeah, trying to, but yes, yes. In general, I feel like, because you can never really, I, I tell this to students when they're trying to figure out what they want to do when they graduate. Um, and there's always kind of that advice that people give you, you know, oh, well, this is where the world is going. So you should do this or that. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, you know, just follow what you want to do because no one really can predict exactly what's going to you know it happen in the world so but I feel if you're doing what you enjoy then you can't really like regret that right like because at least you enjoyed it. <laughs> at least you know it's something that you like and then if it turns out that it's got horrible job prospects or, or you know at least you can be like well I gave it my best shot and I knew that's what I really wanted to do mm -hmm. and I think ultimately when people really enjoy what they do they usually 
it just kind of rises to the top because people see your your, your passion, your enthusiasm for it. Like someone's going to hire you <laughs> to do something, and even if it can't be like your main income, it can be um, a, you know a side side project that you work on. So I'm I'm a big proponent of doing doing what what you really enjoy and what you're passionate about, and then the details will kind of work itself out, even if you can't you know see that coming all the time. Um, let's talk uh, about your research a little bit. Um, your uh, you studied genetics and behavior. How did you uh, how did you get interested in that particular topic? Yeah. Um, hmm. So as I said, I started off just sort of. I'll, kind of, I'll give you the path. So I started off just broadly yeah. interested in paths how, are interesting. <laughs> how the how the brain. Uh, functions and that how just the different ways that people study the brain. So one of the things I think is great about neuroscience is that you can understand it at so many different levels. You can understand what's going on the level of how a cell functions, how a neuron functions, and how these neurons interact together to then produce behavior for for the organism. And I got really excited when I learned about um, the research of Dr. Corey Bardman, who studies uh, C. elegans, which are kind of nematode. And they're super tiny, about the size of a grain of rice. And they have a, a super um, simple nervous system. So they only have 302 neurons. That's opposed to us, to give you just a contrast, we have about 80 billion neurons in our brain. So they have very few neurons. And some early researchers in the 1980s were able to work out what we call the, the connectome, which is a fancy way of saying that we know every single neuron in this form and how they connect to each other. We call the connection between neurons synapses. So we have this amazing map of kind of what we like to think of kind of the hardware for how the nervous system works. And what's so great about working with these little creatures is uh, they're surprisingly conserved with humans. So even though you might think, what do we have in common with a worm? You'd be surprised if you have a lot, and especially um, in nervous system genes. So if you think about um, you've probably heard of different neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, glutamate. C. elegans has the same uh, has the same neurotransmitters and very similar neurotransmitter receptors. So we can actually learn a surprising amount from studying this simple worm. And one of my favorite things that you can do is sort of manipulate. Um, you can actually manipulate its genes to change the function of its neurons. And then you can go all the way through to look at the behavior to see how you've changed the behavior of the, of the worm. And you can do all of that in, in one little organism, in one small research lab. Um, you don't need tons of expensive equipment or anything. And you can ask these really um, interesting questions that you can kind of address at all these, all these different levels of thinking about, you know, how do genes affect things, how do, how do the neurons function differently, and then ultimately, I think, you know, the readout of neuroscience is, is behavior, so how an organism then suddenly changes what it does, and I mean, it can feel kind of amazing that, you know, just sort of tinkering around the lab and making some changes that you can make a worm do something that it wouldn't normally do. <laughs> you can get it to like something that it didn't like, or you can get it to stop moving or start moving and just make these these changes in it and so then sort of the ultimate sort of validation that okay this we, we're understanding how the system works because you can manipulate it. Elizabeth what does that look like so your you your lab works with the C. elegans um, uh -huh. how, how if you were been to describe what you do in your lab and, and your students how, how does that work? Oh wow okay um, so I usually have we had a pretty big lab this uh, 
semester. So I had, I think, eight students in, in and out of the lab. And things were going so well. It would actually make me really sad when we had to pack everything up and stop. Things. I was like, it's like right when the projects were taken up. It's okay. Because when, when, um, one of other attribute of silicons is they can be stored in the freezer. So we can freeze down all of our strains and they're safe in the freezer and we can come back and, and bring them back to life and keep working with them when we get back in the lab. So don't worry too much, but it was still kind of sad. <laughs> um, but so my lab, we tend to we study uh, food choice, which mm -hmm. is how the worms decide what to eat. And that's because it's a decision that they really care about is really important to them kind of as it is to us too right so if you eat good food you're going to have a healthy long life have lots of offspring but if you make bad choices or eat food that makes you sick that's you know not so good and the worms have to make the same kind of decisions and the food that they eat is bacteria so we study how they discriminate among different species of bacteria and we sort of have three different angles of how we look at that. We look at how we can manipulate genetics to change their food preference. We can also manipulate their environment. So if we give them different food to eat when they're growing up, it changes their preference uh, later. And then we have a chemistry project which I collaborate with Dr. Chuck Taylor in the chemistry department here at Pomona, where we're trying to understand the chemicals that are released by the bacteria that the worms use to recognize the bacteria. And what's kind of fun about this project is that we've known for a long time the different pure odorants that are detected by um, silicons, but we didn't know how they recognize mixtures. And that's one of the things we're, we're learning um, to look at. So when a student kind of comes um, in the lab, how do we usually start? We usually start with uh, learning kind of the basic techniques for how to work with the worms. One of the big things they have to learn is what we call picking worms, which means just transferring worms from, from one plate to another. So we grow them on these agar plates with bacteria on them. And the worms reproduce, the one worm can have 300 offspring. So very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, they can eat all the food on the plate and start to starve. So to avoid that, we do something where you're constantly every three or four days, you transfer a couple worms to a new plate so that the, the worms can grow up. So the first thing I think we, they tend to learn is that. And then depending on the specific project, students often work with a, 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 a student who's already been in the lab to learn how to do different different techniques and things. And so every student always has kind of their own project, but they all kind of connect to each other with, with, different, uh, with the different overall questions that we're asking. Great. So um, tell us a little more about, about your students and the work they do. Um, how important are they to your work and, um, and what are they learning along the way? Uh, um, well, the students, yeah, they they are the the people who get the work done. So without them, there would be very very little to talk about. So um, so, and the students at Pomona are amazing. We kind of give them, you know, kind of a little start, and they're just um, off and running. I it's I was reading the thesis of um, one of my students, Mika Madrosong, just that she's graduating this year, and um, because of everything, it was kind of crazy right before everyone left that I, I hadn't seen her data for maybe the last few weeks um, before spring break. So I told her that reading her thesis, I felt like was reading um, a suspense novel because I was so excited to see what she had done. And and so it sort of, I really, I was like, your thesis was like a page turner. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know she had a chance to do that experiment before you had to pack things up. So that was, that was just really fun. It was just sort of like the, the you know, it's like candy, you know, it's just like all this amazing work happening. Um, 
so we had talked about doing some experiments, but you know, I wasn't sure what she had time, had had time to do. So, so that was fun. So the students definitely, um, really, I feel like at the beginning, we talk about um, sort of the questions of the project and sort of some some pilot experiments to do, and then pretty quickly they're saying like, "Well, should we try this or can we do that?" Or um, one of my students would say, "Well," and I say, "Yeah, that's fine. You can try that." And then kind of sheepishly they pull out of their lab and like, well, I kind of already did. So <laughs> here, I'll show you the data from um, <laughs> that. So yeah, so they're, so they're a, a great crowd. Um, Sully Worthy, who graduated in 2018, really uh, pioneered the work we did with identifying the different chemicals that bacteria release. And it's just kind of, uh, you know, she's as an undergraduate, uh, she published two papers, which she's first author on, which is pretty un unusual from an, an undergraduate college. And now she's in, in uh, graduate school at University of British Columbia, and she's going on the pursuing the chemistry route. But she she really learned both. So she was she was a chemistry major, and she learned all the chemistry techniques. But she also would come over to my lab in the neuroscience department, and she learned how to work with worms and do all of the neuroscience. Uh, techniques and how to take care of care of the worms. Um, yeah, so it's just and it was it was kind of uh, you know if you had told me when I started at Pomona, oh yeah you'll you'll have you know you have a student who will be able to figure out for you what bacteria are releasing. I would have said really because I used to give talks um, before we got to the chemical part, and I would I show this bacteria called Serratia marcescens, which the worms just love. They just love 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 the smell of this bacteria. But unfortunately, it's not good for them. It makes them sick. It's pathogenic. <laughs> they die. And so people are always like, that's so strange. Why are they so attracted to it? And so I would get this question, and I'd have to say, I don't know. They're releasing something that's really attractive, but I don't know what it is. And then I was actually giving this talk. We had a joint symposium with the Keck Graduate School and um, the Claremont Colleges. And at the end of the talk, someone you know, asked that question. And I said, I, you know, I don't know. I wish I could find out. And they said, oh, well, there's this, there's people here you could collaborate with to figure that out. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that's kind of how it all how it all started. So Chuck Taylor and I started collaborating. And then he said, Soleil was actually already working in my lab at the time. She was just her very first semester of her first year. And she started off um, a couple hours a week coming in and learning how to just make media and sort of take, take care of the lab and do lab chores and things. And she did a great job at that so we're like okay you want to move on and work on a research project and then Chuck Taylor was like I have this great chemistry student and we're like oh my gosh you know it's the same student <laughs> so yeah so it just it just really worked out so she ended up staying in the lab for her all her four years between my lab and Chuck's lab and then we even convinced her to stay a little bit the summer after she graduated and she trained the next group of students and and how to do the techniques and things so I guess that was a long answer, but yes, um, Pomona students really are amazing at doing great work. And I, I go to conferences and things I've been to, and um, people come by the poster, and they'll they'll say, "Well, I thought Pomona was an undergraduate institution." And I'll say, "It is." <laughs> <laughs> so I have to like you know convince them like these are really under you know undergraduate. That's quite the compliment. Sport. Yeah, it's not, mm -hmm. but it's for the students, you know, mm -hmm. like they, they're the ones who did it. But yeah, so um, I just feel like if you give people you know, smart people, the time and resources, I feel like, you know, the sky's the limit for what, what you can do. Since we're on the topic of your students, what, what are some of the things that they go on to do? So you mentioned the, the case of Soleil. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the other paths that some of your students have gone into? Yeah, so a bunch have gone on to graduate school in neuroscience 
graduate school. Um, some are a lot go to medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, some go into teaching. Um, and some go on and some work in a lab for a couple of years as a lab technician. And then they go on to medical school or graduate school. Uh, yeah, one of my first students just it makes me feel old that she just, you know, actually just this week that she grad. So this is Melissa Chambers. She was actually literally my very first student in the lab and she just finished medical school and she's going to start her residency um, at UC Irvine. So that's pretty exciting. But also I'm like, how could that happen? Because I just picture her as a <laughs> student. But yeah, so it's great. And she actually came back to visit the lab. I guess that was last summer. Or, or maybe it was, I don't know, or it was in the spring. Anyway, she met a few of the current students in the lab and they started asking her all these questions about, you know, how do you get into medical school and what's medical school <laughs> like? And they were just just so hungry for that information to hear it, you know, directly from, you know, a Pomona alum. So she was answering their questions and she said to me afterwards, she said, oh, wow, I hadn't realized that I've, I've gained experience that can be helpful <laughs> to someone else, you know? And I was like, oh, absolutely. So yeah, now she's going to be close by. So I'm hoping we can have her come back and visit again. So uh, Elizabeth, why did you, in the first place, decide to teach at a liberal arts college instead of uh, a larger university where you might have been able to focus more on your research and had had grad students? I, I obviously you have some great students here, but uh, what was your what was your decision making process? Yeah, well, I. Um... I, I love teaching, so that was that was really important to me to be in a place where I could spend time on teaching and have and have that be valued um and and guess in terms of getting uh and I also wanted to be at a small place so that I could be the kind of teacher I want to be so spending a lot of time with students uh kind of coming up with sort of maybe not standard assignments like things like going out and collecting insects or something like that so I I really I really wanted that chance to be a little bit sort of experimental and how I think about uh, my, my teaching, having the room and like in the teaching labs that we do, we give students um, a lot of independence. We teach them kind of techniques and things and usually in the first part of the lab and then and the, towards the end of the semester, we let them do an independent project where they can kind of come up with ideas on their own and, and test things. And I'm just always amazed with the creative projects that students are able to come up with so that I'm just as excited as they are to see, oh, let's see what happened. You know, no one's ever done this before. Um, so I think it's so all of those pieces. And then when I thought about the research piece, it's definitely, it's true, things move more slowly than if you're at a research institution where you have graduate students and postdocs working full-time uh, year-round on a project. But I, I like to think of it as a, you, the students are the they're the same people. You're you're just you're getting them at an earlier stage in their career. But you know, these students, you know, I can. It's funny because they themselves think, oh, I you know, I'm just learning. I don't know anything. I'm just like, no, I can see it already. If this is the direction you want to go, you you've got the skills that you need to keep moving forward. But but it's nice to. Um, it's, you know, I think about like almost like a tree growing. It's like we get to see them at their kind of their, their young tree. Their sapling years. Yeah, the sapling years. And it's just a really <laughs> exciting time to see so many changes happen, see their, their interests evolve in sort of that moment where they sort of realize like, oh, this is, this is what I was looking for. Because sometimes you haven't been exposed to that much yet, depending. And so you, you're trying to figure out, okay, what am I interested in? And you just, you haven't gotten to it yet because no one's going to tell you about, you know, 
genetics research with C. elegans when you're in high school, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, well, maybe some people will, but so generally it's kind of this chance to say, oh, this is what I like to do. Sort of putting together people who like to do, you know, computer science and programming and realizing you can use those skills to, you know, analyze uh, neuroscience data or, you know, it just sort of like, oh, or I had someone who's great at drawing and there's a whole career path and medical illustration and say, oh, I didn't even know that I could put together these, these two ideas. So I think that's, it's just a fun, fun part to be kind of part of their lives. And I mean, so much changes from first year to when they graduate in terms of their, you know, they go from taking courses and everything, just, you know, having a major and, have, you know, having ideas for what they want to do next. So it's just, I think it's just a really fun time to interact with them. Elizabeth, you mentioned that you enjoy the liberal arts setting because you like teaching. Tell us about your classes. What are some of the classes that you're teaching now or and some of the classes you, you enjoy teaching? Yeah, so I teach intro neuroscience, um, which is a really fun class to teach. We kind of get to start at the, the very basics, kind of we teach the, the foundation of information that we feel like you know any neuroscientist would need to know, sort of how neurons function, basic neuroanatomy about the different structures of the brain, how, how the brain develops, um, sensory processing, and then, uh, and then motor systems, you know, how, we, how our movement is controlled. Um, and I think what I try to do in classes is kind of flip things around. I think students sometimes get the idea because we have these big textbooks that we know everything and that's far from the truth. There's so many things we still don't know about how the brain functions. And so, and, but we, we don't tend to write that in our in textbooks, right? We focus on writing about what we know. Uh, because that's that's what academics do, right? We talk, we don't really want to have a textbook full of like, hmm, and we don't really know this, and we don't know that, and we're still working on figuring that out. So be I kind of blank, actually. <laughs> be kind of blank, yeah. So I try to get students to um, kind of realize that, so that it doesn't feel like this old stale field where it's all that there's things are moving forward, and also that when they come up with, you know, sometimes I'm trying to explain something and they'll ask a question to say like that that is a great question that we don't have an answer to right now. I can, you know, people are trying to work on how to, how to answer that or, and so just to feel like, you know, to trust their own um, kind of intuition about, huh, like, how would that work or how, and, and to figure mm -hmm. out uh, so, so that it's, so it feels more like an inquiry. So you're focusing more on the questions that you're trying to figure out because that's what scientists really do. We don't spend much time thinking about, oh, look at all the things we already know. Isn't that great, right? <laughs> We're always going on to the next thing, but what about this? We don't know this yet. We don't know this yet. You know, how can we, how can we figure that out? So um, during these uh, very strange times um, when um, we're all working from home. How how are you doing with your classes? How are how are you carrying forward? And are your, you know, are are is there any part of the research you were doing with your students that can continue forward, or is all, that all on hold until they can come back in the fall? Yeah, yeah. So with the research students, uh, they're doing their data analysis right now, so they can do that. But in terms of doing experiments, yeah, that's pretty much um, on hold, which is. Which is sad, but <laughs> but we're all in the same situation. Um, and then in terms of the teaching, it's kind of interesting. I've never taught remotely before, so I read um, some you know resources, and we had a bunch of workshops over spring break to think about how we wanted to sort of change our course to teaching online. 
And it was, it was interesting. So I, I sort of started with the idea that we would do a lot of what's called asynchronous learning, which is what a lot of online universities do. So you kind of log in and answer questions and you watch video lectures and things. So I kind of start the very first week, I started the class that way, which is completely different, of course, than what we normally do in class. And then I could tell from the students, they were kind of like, this is not what we, <laughs> this is not what we were used to. So we actually ended up changing it up. So we have Zoom classes now where we all meet as a group. Um, and one, sometimes I give kind of more of a sort of an interactive lecture where I give them background. And then <clears throat> other times we read journal articles and the, we discuss the findings in the article and, and critique the paper. So that's pretty much stayed the same thing that we would, we would do in the class. And then the nice thing that I found is that I feel like Zoom, when you have a lot of people, um, I mean, not even that, really, honestly, more than four people, <laughs> I feel like it gets hard <laughs> to really pay attention to everybody and what's going mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So we've done a, we, so we did some one-on-one um, -on -one meetings. They write a, for this class, this is my upper level course called Genes and Behavior. They write a research proposal. And so what we did is we, I set up one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with every student in the class to talk about their uh, they wrote an outline for their research proposal. So we discussed that and, uh, and how do, they're going to move it on to the next step of actually writing up the research proposal. And those conversations were really fun because that's the point where you realize that we've gone from sort of introducing them to these different genetic techniques that are used to study neuroscience and behavior to now they've become sort of theirs. They're part of their toolbox. So we're talking about, oh, you could do this experiment. You could do that experiment. And they're saying, oh, but what about this? And I was like, oh, this is so great. So I have to answer them like, well, yes. But inside I'm like, oh, that's so great that they're even like, that they're asking these questions, that they're able to um, sort of, you know, we're sort of brainstorming together about good ideas for, for experiments to do. So that's turned out to be kind of even more rewarding, I think, in this time when we're sort of more separated to kind of feel like we still had that, their interaction kind of working together on a project. And on on that line, um, you mentioned that there's there are a lot of questions still unanswered, especially in neuroscience. What are some of the research projects that you're, you're working on right now or, or will work in the future? Yeah, so, um, so kind of have several sort of different spokes, I guess, going on, all connected to the idea of, of food choice. Uh, so one project that I'm really interested in, so we talked about how um, worms recognize these mixtures, which is um, how they recognize different species of bacteria that release these different mixtures of, of odors. And so one thing that I'm really interested in is the idea of kind of perception versus just directly what you sense um, in that. Uh, from the components. So just to kind of give an example, right, you could have a complex mixture, let's say a mixture of five different odorants, but when you smell it, you might just say, oh, that smells kind of like blueberry pie. You don't actually identify all the subcomponents <laughs> that make up that, that smell. And we're mm -hmm. trying to figure out if worms do the same thing or not. We can, we're still working on this. I can't answer mm -hmm. that. So that's our question. Mm -hmm. We're basically trying to understand Kind of how, how they identify these mixtures, whether it's it's the sum total is kind of a whole different percept that they look at, or whether they're always able to sort of identify the components making it up. Of course, it'll depend on the orders and how many and all of that. But we're just trying to answer that very basic question because I think one thing that's so interesting about the nervous system um, and the brain is that we can perceive sensory input uh, coming in, but we're 
and we think that our sensory representation is, is of the world around us, but in fact, our brain is doing constant sort of interpretation of what's going on. Or sort of the famous example where a video is shown to you know, students in the class and people are playing basketball and you're, 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 you tell the students, okay, count how many baskets um, the team wearing the black shirts gets or something. And so they, they do that. And what they don't know is in the background of the video, there's somebody in a gorilla suit who walks through, walks through the background of the video. And you ask the students at the end of the video, did anyone see the gorilla? And they all say, what gorilla? What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And then you ask them to do it again, where you don't have to count. You're just watching the video. And then they see, oh, yeah, there's a gorilla. There it is. So just because your attention is focused, you can completely miss something that's going on. So mm -hmm. I think we, that's something that I'm interested in seeing if we can kind of model how that could happen. Um, and the worm is that we can kind of trick them between what, what directly they're sensing and versus what they're perceiving and kind of how to untangle those things. And so we're working on doing that um, with, with the odor mixtures. So that's kind of one big project. Um, and then the, the other one is more kind of a genetics project, which is the idea that um, we know that many neurological disorders are in, inherited because they run in, run in families, for example, you know, the, the greatest risk factor in sense for developing something like schizophrenia is probably because someone in your family um, has schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And so we thought the human genome was sequenced almost 20 years ago. And we thought, oh, we'll know the genetic basis of all these inherited disorders. You know, it's 2020 and you probably know that we do not know the genetic basis of many inherited disorders. There are a few that we do know, but I would say most of them we still don't know. And the reason why is it's complicated. <laughs> it's not going to be as simple as just one gene being involved. Probably multiple genes um, are involved. It could also be that different genes are mutated in different people that lead to similar symptoms that we call the same disease. And so C. elegans <laughs> is great because we can manipulate their genes very easily and we can keep their environment the same, right? People, human studies are always challenging because you have that mix of nature and nurture, but with worms, it's pretty easy to uncouple those things. So one of my projects is studying, um, I look at different populations of worms that have different genetic backgrounds, um, but different in their food preference, and then trying to understand how the genes affect their food, food preference. So that's a way, so it's not looking at, so it's kind of indirect, right? We're not looking at something like schizophrenia, but we are looking at something that's encoded um, in the genome, in this case, their food preference. And then we're working on mapping the genes that seem to affect their food preference and seeing what kind of changes in genes happen. And so that ultimately will help us in thinking of, about ideas for different changes in genes we can look for in humans that might um, affect genes and lead to disorders. So on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time, so um, we're going to have to wrap this up. But uh, we've been talking with Elizabeth Glader, Associate Professor of Neuroscience. Thanks, Elizabeth. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.